the elites are more than happy to um, sanction the Russians and say, um, you know, that the, the Russians should be cut out from the global economy, but they're not willing to do the same thing with regard to China. And therefore, Russia is able to do what they want because they have China as that relief valve. How does a former general of the United States Air Force see Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Why haven't nations around the world sanctioned China yet, despite the apparent complicity? How does this war map onto China's threat to Taiwan? And what is the prospect of a nuclear war in the future with Russia or China? Today, we sit down with Robert Spaulding, former one-star general officer in the United States Air Force and senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, to talk about China's roles and interests in the war and how they are connected to the reactions of Western nations we're witnessing today. We also discuss the war's implications for the current world order and forthcoming choice facing nations under the military protection of the United States, yet maintain an economic partnership with the Chinese Communist Party. General Spaulding, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be here. So, General, we're here to talk about what's going on in Ukraine and the overshadowing threat of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, what's going on now fits your profile really quite squarely in both kinetic and non-conventional warfare. And kind of having worked with nuclear deterrent strategies and you know, driven the nuclear warplane yourself, the B-2, uh, and a PhD in economics. So uh, you're quite in a good position to talk about this. Before, before we get into all of those, I kind of want to get to your, uh, get your gauge on how this whole thing will turn out at the end. So yesterday, Russia took its first city in Kherson and reportedly ramped up missile attack on Kyiv. Um, and around which Russian troops are still stationed as we speak on Thursday morning. And they're holding a second round of negotiations today. Tell us your reflections on the situation and the different scenarios that might play out from here. Well, you know, so first of all, you have to go back to the second Iraq war when the United States, you know, faced claims of bogging down and the war not going well. And that was within the first 10 days. The war was over in three weeks. So... Um, a lot of that discussion was premature, and I think a lot of the same thing is going on here. People forget what the Russians did in Chechnya, and I suspect, and we're starting to see, that a lot of the same tactics that eventually were used in Chechnya to level cities are going to be used by the Russians. So I don't think the war um, may be, be go going as well as the Russians would like, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that the Ukrainians are going to win. I think the Russians are going to keep pouring on the pressure until um, the, the Ukrainians have no choice but to give up. So that's my assessment of the situation. And what do you think the repercussions for Putin is going to be? I mean, the sanctions are already ramping up across the world. So. Well, I mean, that's the, I mean, the real, um, you know, leverage point here is China. It's not really the Russians because the Russians could not do what they've done without the tacit approval of China. So it just uh, came out that, you know, China basically told the Russians don't invade during the Olympics. So they knew they were going to invade. They just didn't want it to upstage the Olympics. And second of all, they've said that they're not going to join sanctions. So Russia needs to sell oil. They need to sell gas. The Chinese need Russian oil and gas or some oil and gas. The question here is whether or not we're going to actually put economic sanctions and isolate China for their support of Russia. To the extent that we don't, the Russians have a relief valve. So 
while we think that we are putting pressure on the Russians by sanctioning the Russians and by you know cutting off Nord Stream 2 from Europe, as long as they can get their relief valve through China, they're not going to uh, you know suffer because they've already planned. They expected this. They they built up reserves of their cash and they had already talked to China about supporting them through this cap through this crisis. So um, this is a long-term uh, effort that you know really hinges on whether the free world recognizes that China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and other authoritarian regimes have to be confronted and have to be isolated economically, or this is going to consume the world. Right, and on the on the point of recognizing it, it seems obvious, almost too obvious, based on what they released the joint document on February the fourth, uh, which is filled with talking points on you know the two countries' authoritarian um, takes. Right, and so first, why haven't the West sanctioned China? Well, the 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 Chinese have done a great job. The Chinese Communist Party has, have done a great job of basically enlisting the elites of the free world. And so a lot of their wealth is tied up in this relationship with China. And so if you want to, you know, essentially get a nation to do what you want, you have to put pressure on the elites of that nation. And essentially that's what China has done by entwining themselves into the fortunes of the elites. They're able to then push on them and lean on them and this is the problem. So the elites are more than happy to um, sanction the Russians and say, um, you know, that the, the Russians should be cut out from the global economy, but they're not willing to do the same thing with regard to China. And therefore, Russia is able to do what they want because they have China as that relief valve. And second question on, on this note. So given the world sanctions in place so far, would you say that China, uh, watching this, would be want to would want to go beyond not sanctioning Russia and actually lend a hand to them? And if so, are they capable of offsetting the effects of the sanctions on Russia? Well, given the fact that China is the supply chain to the world, so they they have the manufacturing capability to support whatever industrial needs Russia, or um, you know the the newly acquired Ukraine needs. They're going to be just fine. You know, Ukraine has a lot of uh, resources. They have a lot of technology. They have a lot of capability for um, agriculture. So they, Russia is gaining an asset, and then China will be in, will uh, be able to help them rebuild that asset. And so the combined uh, Russia and Ukraine becomes a much more powerful country within Europe. And it's allied with China. So, yeah, China has the ability to do it, and they're doing it. They're building a huge gas pipeline from Russia to China to ensure that Russia has the ability to continue to sell its energy. So this is a, this is a, um, a, a symbiotic relationship between, between two authoritarian regimes. And how do you, how do you evaluate the, the, the world's kind of attitude towards China right, right now as of this moment? Well, I think there is, you know, essentially disbelief that the Chinese could be supporting the Russians. And so most of, you know, most strategists are thinking, well, the Chinese don't want to get involved, but they're not necessarily helping the Russians. That's not true. If you're if you're buying their energy, if you're not joining sanctions, you're on effect helping uh, the Russians. And so while their rhetoric 
um, you know, the, the Chinese have used rhetoric to distance themselves from Russia. Their actions actually belie that rhetoric. So, and I think, you know, what's going to happen is you're going to see that over the months and years to come, that the Chinese Communist Party will continue to support um, Russia economically. And that's what they need. They need an economic lifeline, and China provides it to them. And on the part of the United States, you mentioned uh, the part about energy, inter, the in interdependence of energy. What do you think of the policies uh, on this within the United States at, at this point? And how does this play into the dynamic in Eastern Europe? Well, you know, look, we were energy independent and then we decided to stop that. And, you know, we actually buy Russian energy. So in many ways, you know, our rhetoric is not mat matching our actions. So we have to fundamentally rethink how we approach the world and recognize we've entered the second Cold War. We don't have a statesman of the same um, you know, stature of, say, a Churchill. Churchill went to St. Louis you know, prior to the beginning of the Cold War and said a great iron curtain has fallen over Europe. We don't have uh, Western statesmen that have the courage or are not compromised through these relationships um, these, these, these economic relationships with China. So it, it's a real problem. And, it, and quite frankly, it was a very um, good strategy on behalf of both Russia and China to bide their time, to wait for you know, this infiltration to take place, and then to begin to you know, create problems for the free world. People say, oh, well, we can't cut ourselves off from China because they make everything now. Well, that becomes a real problem if the if the requirement to continue to receive those goods is that you transform your society from one of a democratic society to one of more of an, an authoritarian society that's the, the the compact we've made with these regimes and unfortunately unless we're willing to confront that you know and this this doesn't mean that it's going to be easy if we're not willing to confront that and the pain that comes along with that then we're going to slowly just slide into this abyss where rather than after the cold war where freedom won that in this case authoritarianism will win and you will see authoritarianism continue to grow throughout the world and would you say that china would be kind of the leading figure in that authoritarian um, camp because right now it seems like Russia and China are, are kind of uh, almost based on your evaluation in, in alliance. So would you say would you think China would be kind of the big brother of that that alliance? Well, they they absolutely are the same way that the United States was the engine of economic growth for the free world uh, throughout the Cold War. You know the uh, technology and innovation and productivity that came out of the United States really enabled Western Europe to rise up. It uh, uh, um, enabled the rest of Asia, the free nations of Asia, to rise up. And then those, those citizens of the authoritarian regimes within the former Soviet Union eventually rose up and overthrew their governments. And so I think what you have now is that China has most of the productive capacity of the world and because of that has the allegiance of Western elites and therefore they are the leading protagonists in this, in this uh, next Cold War. And I think I would say right now at least they have the advantage. Um, this is really, you know, needs to be a wake-up call for the West to say, you know, are we going to double down on the principles that you know, upon which this the free world was founded, you know, 
liberty, uh, rule of law, free trade, or are we going to succumb to these relationships that we've created that bind us to a more authoritarian bent? So I want to switch gear a little bit and kind of tune to the Indo-Pacific. Um, at this point, many are mapping Russia's invasion of Ukraine onto the China threat to Taiwan. And given the recent alarm bell raised in the West by the invasion of Ukraine uh, and the sanctions, would you say that Beijing's risk calculus have changed on invading Taiwan? Well, what I would say about Taiwan is the same thing I would have told you about Ukraine. Uh, Putin made a decision about Ukraine. Uh, he's executing that decision on his own timeline. I think there's a lot of self-flagellating going on in the West saying we could have done this or we could have done that. Um, Absent having, you know, you know, left Ukraine with nuclear weapons with which to defend themselves from Russia, there's not really a lot we could do. So Putin was, um, you know, he wanted to get Ukraine back. He felt the, the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest, greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. That, so we have to understand that nations do their own thing for their own interests even authoritarian ones. And what I would say about China is they are going to do the same thing with regard to Taiwan. There's not a lot we can do to dissuade them of that. You know, deterrence, you know, in a, in a, in a post-nuclear world means that if the adversary is nuclear armed and they don't fear the ex escalation to nuclear war as a consequence of their actions, then therefore they, they will feel inclined to act because they will not see that in the case of Taiwan, they have nuclear weapons with which to, f to defend themselves. And what can you tell us about the prospect of China invading Taiwan? Like, do you think it would be happen pretty soon before the 20th Congress or maybe afterwards, uh, maybe a few years afterwards? Or? You know, and, and far, as far as timeline, you know, I felt the Olympics had to be over before we entered this period where um, an invasion could happen. Um, you know, from here on out, it's anyone's guess. And I would suspect that, you know, they have, you know, some calculus, you know, telling and when I'm saying they, the, the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army, they have their own calculus, their own timeline, and they're looking for certain flags that tell them it's time to go. It's not, you know, um, the West. It's not our actions that will drive that. Um, it could be a distraction. So, you know, having the um, the in Ukraine invasion continue to linger could be could serve as a distraction, or they could want to see things blow over with regard to Russia and then have it happen. I think it le has less to do with um, you know she being elected to a third term. I think it has more to do with what's the external environment and and what are they looking for so that they feel like they have the right conditions for success for a successful um, uh, invasion. The other um, thing that we have to consider is the Belt and Road Initiative, like um, Russia's lifeline uh, with China, the Belt and Road Initiative is designed to be this economic you know, system that drives the, the Chinese economy in the event that they do invade Taiwan and they're cut off. So Russia, and with the newly acquired Ukraine and the, and, the, and the vast riches of Ukraine and the rest of the Belt and Road Initiative, they become part of, you know, not as um, tightly 
politically oriented as the Soviet Union, but very much the same of, of, as an economic and political order around this idea of authoritarianism. The question remains is how many democracies will be swept up into that, into that order? And I guess in an ideal world, what should the United States uh, do as preventative measures in terms of Taiwan? And do you, what do you see standing in the way of doing this? Well, so I think in terms of Taiwan, we ought to be looking at the, the, the safety and welfare of the people of Taiwan. As you're seeing with Ukraine, uh, if the Chinese run into trouble um, conquering Taiwan, then their tendency to up the uh, level of devastation and destruction and death is going to increase. And so we need to be prepared to evacuate the people of Taiwan those that want to leave, we need to be prepared to not allow um, technology or capabilities to fall into the Chinese hands as a consequence of the conquest of Taiwan. And then what we really need to do is to begin the things that we did during the Cold War. We, we need to invest in free societies, in our own society, in, um, in infrastructure, in manufacturing, in science and technology, in STEM education. And when we begin to do that and withdraw you know, and stop sending innovation, technology, talent, and capital to China and the rest of the authoritarian system, then you can allow the principles of freedom to actually show that they're better than the principles of authoritarianism. Ultimately, China's economy is less efficient than, you know, a free world economy. But the problem is, as long as they have access to the free world to get the things they need, the innovation, the technology, the talent, and most importantly, the capital, then they will continue to be grow almost like a tumor that is taking the lifeblood out of the free world. So on this, on this note, there's, a, there's some theory saying that the United States should actually supply uh, certain defense infrastructure, not offense, but defense infrastructure to Taiwan, for example, long-range missiles, um, you know, in the event of what we just described. Uh, what do you think is the... Um, the, the usefulness of th this in terms of helping to defend Taiwan, and do you think it's very uh, that would be too provocative to the to the CCP? I think short of uh, you know giving the Taiwanese nuclear weapons, there's not much that you're going to that you're going to be able to do to deter a Chinese attack. Uh, I don't think that anybody's going to advocate giving nuclear weapons to Taiwan. Um, it's it's you know almost like. Um, you know, the, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, when, when Russia sent uh, nuclear missiles to Cuba. So um, I think, and, and that could lead to, you know, um, you know, nuclear escalation between the U.S. and China. So barring that, I honestly don't believe that there's anything that we can do to prevent a, an, an invasion that China, the Chinese Communist Party has said for decades is coming. They have, tr it, it has been so clear and transparent. They have said this. This is, this is something that is in their plan. And, you know, we, we think because it's taken decades to materialize, that therefore there's some way that we can get them to, and, and we believed that maybe if they liberalized politically, that they would not be interested in doing this in the future. That's not happening. In fact, they've gotten stronger, and they've built the capability to actually effectuate that invasion and conquest. So, 
It's coming. We have to be prepared for that. The only thing that we can do is make them pay the price by ensuring that in the future they're cut off from all of the benefits of free of the free world. And when they do that, and when they're forced to, you know, provide for their uh, citizens in a regime, quite frankly, that disdains the truth or transparency, or really disdains the individual and individual liberty. That system will inevitably collapse. Now, how long will that take? Who knows? It took over 40 years for the Soviet Union to collapse. So this is a long war. It's not something that's going to be over next week or next year or in the next 10 years. We have to prepare ourselves for that. We have to defend ourselves. Nuclear weapons become very important in terms of deterring an attack on the free world. And then we're going to have to grow our capability, our productivity. American citizens and the citizens of other free societies are going to have to have better lives than the people of China and Russia so that the people of China and Russia can see that the system that they're in is actually a prison. Yeah, I think there, there are a pretty significant amount of awareness for that within, within China. Uh, that's kind of just my personal opinion. Uh, I want to get into a couple areas that you just mentioned. Uh, first of all, nuclear deterrence. So yesterday, the United States delayed a missile launch in an attempt to not provoke Russia, who has raised the level of nuclear alert to special combat capability. In your analysis, how likely is a nuclear conflict at this moment? Are we doing everything we can to minimize this possibility? Well, I think the, um, the likelihood of a nuclear conflict between the U.S. and Russia is, is extremely low. And I think the reason is, is because both, um, both the leadership of Russia and the leadership of the United States understand the extreme devastation that comes from the nuclear weapons. The the you know the idea that a you know stopping a missile test that is a pretty much a standard test um, by the United States somehow contributes to um, lowering the heat with regard to um, you know what the Russians view as a threat it's really um, to me it didn't really carry much credibility I think the Russians are entirely focused on Ukraine they're entirely focused on the on Europe and they're not focused on some you know, tests going out of Bandenberg. You know, deterrence is much more, um, I think, steady state. And the awareness of where, you know, the United States is certainly going is pretty clear uh, within Russia. They know that the United States is not seeking to get into a nuclear conflict with Russia, nor is Russia looking to get into a nuclear conflict with the United States. We've had these engagements, talks, you know, SALT and START, the INF Treaty, all of these mechanisms to really understand the intentions and capabilities of both sides. So I think the understanding of both Russia and China in terms of what are the capabilities and intentions with regard to nuclear weapons of both sides is, is fairly well understood by both sides. What's not well understood is the nuclear capabilities and intents of the Chinese side, because they, we have not had those dialogues with China in the same way we've had with Russia. So I would say in terms of nuclear, uh, the threat of nuclear war, we have a higher, um, higher probability that you could have some kind of escalation between the U.S. and China, merely because the Chinese have, been, have refused, patently refused to be transparent at all about what they're doing with nuclear weapons. They are increasing their number of nuclear weapons as we speak, 
and it's gone way beyond you know what they initially termed their strategy of minimal deterrence right they just needed the minimum around amount of nuclear weapons to deter an attack on their country they're going way beyond that strategy and in the in the challenge for the united states is we don't know what that means i suspect what it means is that they want to be able to be in a position to be the nuclear hegemon and not have the united states as one so I think, you know, in terms of nuclear conflict or, 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 or certainly confrontation, there's a much higher probability for, of that happening between the U.S. and China, primarily because of the, the stance of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, and, and I think this week, an, an admiral from the military testified in the United States Congress, and he, um, he said basically there's an astronomical uh, level of increase of the Chinese military in the last year. Uh, what's your reflections on this? Well, not only have they increased the number, um, quite dramatically, the number of nuclear weapons they have, they have MIRVed ICBMs. So we demerved our ICBMs. So we have one, um, one warhead for each ICBM. They have 10 on their DF-41s. Uh, they've developed hypersonics missiles to include hypersonics that drop off, um, you know, uh, um, weapons. Uh, on their way. So in terms of their advance, and by the way, those advances came with the help of NASA scientists and, Ameri and American scientists that were helping the Chinese uh, Communist Party develop these weapons. So we've actually helped them develop better weapons than we currently have. And so absolutely, we, you know, the, the threat from China in terms of nuclear, um, nuclear um, challenges has increased dramatically um, just over the last 10 years. I want to jump to um, another another topic here, which is what, what it will look like within the next few years for the world order. Uh, so the Trump administration had called on Germany to expand its military capabilities for a long time and frankly aren't quite successful. Uh, but within a matter of days, Russia was able to push Germany to do this by invading Ukraine. And this seems like it's rather a reactive response from Germany. Uh, what's your re reflection on this? Well, you know, of course, they reacted to Russia, but Germany and China are like a match made in heaven. So, you know, the, the Germans have this incredible economic relationship with China, and I don't see that ending anytime soon. And so, again, as long as China continues to be the lifeline to Russia, you know, even though that Germany has decided to now invest more than 2% of their GDP on their national security, and even though they've decided to cut off Nord Stream 2, um, the fact that they are deeply, deeply wedded to the Chinese Communist Party means that you know there's infiltration in the heart of Europe. Germany is the most powerful country within uh, Europe, and you know soon to be uh, Russia with the acquisition of Ukraine. So. Now we've got a problem because the the most powerful economic country within Europe is so um, deeply tied to the Chinese Com Communist Party, who is the leader of the authoritarian um, system that is trying to overtake the free world. It's a it's a tremendous challenge, and I don't see that it's changed much just because they finally woke up to you know what Putin was doing. And so you're. On the side that the Belt and Road Initiative that China is doing in Europe, um, is that going to be affected by by this this whole thing, uh, or do you think do you see it's just well business as usual? Well, see that's the um, that's the real um, you know important question here. Will these nations 
not just the nations of the Belt and Road Initiative, but Germany, nations like Germany or nations like America uh, and Japan, will they recognize that this economic tie to China is feeding the, the rise and spread of authoritarianism around the world? If they don't, then, you know, I think what we have to recognize is that the tools for digital authoritarianism are already embedded in the free world. And all it needs is for those, um, the elites of those societies to continue to double down on that system, the system of open data, the system of data collection, and then using that data collection to um, change the, the perceptions and uh, intentions and behaviors of the citizens of those nations. So the tools are there. And certainly China and Russia have leveraged those tools over their own populations and increasingly over the populations of the free world. So the question here is, will we break free of that or will we just embrace you know, the, the authoritarianism because the elites feel that it's in more in their interest in terms of their continued wealth that they, that they don't fight what's coming from China? Even with this consideration, uh, do you see an increased effort for militarization among uh, the countries that we mentioned around the world in the coming months? Well, certainly Europe is, is arming up for Russia. Um, will um, others arm up for China? I think so. Japan has um, the Japan has, is definitely uh, making moves this way, and you know the, they're recognizing that you know Abe said, "Hey, we need to U.S. needs to be much more um, specific when it comes to Taiwan." I don't think that's coming because the U.S. Uh, doesn't want to get into nuclear confrontation with China. Um, the the wild card here is Korea. Is Korea going to you know recognize the threat of a communist China on its doorstep, or is it going to succumb to the economic relationship with China? You know the, they do have a military, but it's mostly devoted to North Korea. Now the rest of Asia, they don't um, they want to be a security partner of the United States but they want to be an economic partner of China. And so therein lies the, the, the conflict between within their own societies. And I suspect that as time goes on, that they will you know, come to you know, lean heavily, more heavily on that economic relationship. And therefore, you know, perhaps you'll see most of Asia turn you know, towards China. When that happens, you know, authoritarianism is, authoritarianism is already going to be uh, kind of embedded in the system that China has with them. That economic system brings with it a set of, you know, requirements that you as a nation and, and your companies heed the line of the Chinese Communist Party. And if you don't, you'll be punished. And so I think that's already kind of embedded in the way that Asians think about the world, um, unfortunately. Um, and, and we have helped the We've made the problem worse by saying, sure, we'll be a security partner of you while you go and, and, and do your economic partnership with China, and not to say, no, that economic partnership actually undermines the security relationship that you want to have with us. And so we've allowed these nations to basically have a foot in both camps. And if we're actually serious about stopping the rise and spread of authoritarianism, you have to say you have to choose. And if you choose China, fine. But then you're going to have to have the PLA Navy to protect you. You're going to have to have the PLA Air Force to protect you. No longer will the American military be there to protect you because we can't afford 
to protect those nations that want to undermine the free world with their economic relationships. So on one end, you have this kind of uh, authoritarian mercantilism uh, coming from China. And on the other end, you have the United States. Um, would, you, would you describe the United States' current status of you know, guaranteeing security around the world from what we see with Afghanistan, uh, from what we see with Ukraine? Do you think it's kind of almost backing off from the position uh, of what they call the world police? Well, I think it's a recognition that we can't be. You know, it's just it's unaffordable for America. Now, I think, you know, coming out of the Cold War, or coming out of World War II, it was certainly in our interest to lend our, we, you know, we and the Russians were the only nuclear powers. So it was certainly in our interest to lend our economic might, our productivity, and, you know, our, um, the fact that we had nuclear weapons to those democracies. We did things like the Marshall Plan. You know, we rebuilt these countries that had been devastated by war because we felt like if we did that, and then, you know, in, a, in, in concordance with the Atlantic Charter that FDR signed with Churchill in 1941, before the start of World War II, we wanted to build a world that was based on the principles of rule of law and free trade and individual liberty. These are the things that we attempted to do and actually were quite successful at doing, ultimately leading to the downfall of the Soviet Union. But what happened was at the end of the Cold War, we said Russia, China, all of these nations come into the free world order and you can partake of all the innovation, technology, talent and capital that the free world has to offer because we believe that would liberalize them politically. Not didn't happen. And now we're faced with, you know, the prospect of having to do that again. I want to finish off by something really interesting uh, that you tweeted yesterday, which you actually touched upon uh, just now, which compared Western and Eastern strategic orientation. Uh, I said in the West seeks to accomplishes objectives through voluntary and assertive action, uh, whereby it's completely opposite with the with the East, with, with China, where efficacy is about deep strategy with constant adaptation to the circumstances, sort of like what you see with the chess game Go. Uh, your reflections on how this difference manifests in the strategic landscape of China and the United States today? Yes, I mean, I think the um, when you when you look at um, the way that um, China addresses the the strategic landscape and how it prepares itself, um, it's very different from the West. And you know, the West has this idea that you can you can make the world into your image, and you can pick a goal in the future, and you can muster your resources, and you can actually make the world conform to your vision for the world. The, the, the Chinese Communist Party you know, leverages a, a lot of Eastern thinking with regard to what is the world going? Where is it going? Where are strategic trends heading? What, is, what do I see out there that I can take advantage of? And then rather than try to change that, how do I make myself conform to that and then be carried along with that flow? And so in the case of uh, the Chinese Communist Party, what they, there's two things they realize. Globalization and the Internet would really enable them to take this idea of political warfare globally. And so if they just adapted you know, to those principles, understood globalization, understood the Internet and this power over the individual— um, and particularly, you know, how it would, you know, lead 
um, China to economic uh, power, that then they were they all they had to do was orient their society around that, take advantage of that, and then be carried away uh, by that. So I think it's it's very um, it's a very different way of looking at the world, and I think it's something that we have to take into account when we're thinking about you know what what is the vision for the world that we would like to see if it is one of liberty and and justice and and, and free trade and rule of law. Then what are the things that we have to do to adapt ourselves to ensure that 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 um, that reality comes to light? Uh, so you have a book that kind of talks about this aspect of the unrestricted warfare from from China that's coming out pretty soon, right? Yes, it's called War Without Rules, and really it's taking that unrestricted warfare that was written by the two PLA Air Force uh, lieutenant colonels back in 1997, I believe. And it's condensing it, it's making it more simple to read, and then it's adding my um, commentary about that. And it's really letting people understand how, you know, in particular, the way that the coronavirus played out, you know, the, the use of uh, psychological warfare, the use of fear, um, and, and, and some would say, you know, the use of trade war and other uh, elements of, you know, national power that we don't typically think of. Um, it's a real good you know, understanding of how the Chinese Communist Party actually used the things of day to day, the everyday you know, um, you know, processes of life, financial, trade, investment, and in this case, influence in the medical community uh, to create fear, how they blend all those together to create the kind of outcomes that favor you know, at least in terms of a power balance, the Chinese Communist Party. So it's coming out in April, and uh, it should be a, a fairly uh, quick and easy read, just like Stealth War was. Right. And what's the? And remind me of of the name of the book. It's called War Without Rules. Okay, sounds good. I'll make sure to look look out for that. General Spalding, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you.